Welcome to the 294th regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable. Ed is, as you may well know, the historian with the National Park Service, author of numerous articles on the Civil War, the battles, the leaders, and so forth, and possibly the only man that I know that has read and memorized every volume of the ORs. Uh, I think his phenomenal memory is been made very clear to all of us on some of these battlefield tours that we're on. We're indeed fortunate in having him with us in this coming year. This evening's topic uh, is Grant's assault on Vicksburg, May 19 to 22, 1863. And it is with sincere pleasure that I'd like to have you meet our friend Ed Bars. The pleasure of being with you folks is always uh, I always like to come back here and chat with all my old friends. Well, we're going to uh, talk about Grant's uh, two assaults on Vicksburg on May 19th and 22nd. Uh, for the people that aren't familiar with the Vicksburg campaign, I'll uh, give about two minutes resume to get them up to May 19th. As you know, uh, the Vicksburg and control of the Mississippi River was one of the it was a great objective, especially to the people of the old Northwest and Illinois. They launched their thrust. Uh, the Navy got its first try to get Vicksburg in the summer of 1862 when Farragut attacked from the with the ocean-going fleet coming up from New Orleans while the river fleet dropped down river from Memphis. The uh, Union Navy, supported by a small force of infantry, however, failed to prevail and the Union recoiled from Vicksburg. Grant then undertook his first campaign against Vicksburg, which was to operate through central Mississippi along the what is today the IC, but which was then the Mississippi Central Railroad down through Holly Springs, Oxford, Grenada. Of course, that bogged down when uh, Forrest and Van Dorn, with their slashing raids, cut Grant's supply lines and forced Grant to turn back, while the Confederates were able to reinforce at Vicksburg and batter Sherman when he attacked at Chickasaw Bayou. Grant then transferred his field of operations directly to the Vicksburg area so he could get control of the operations in that area. And during the winter months of 62-63, attempted to bypass Vicksburg to the north and to the south, failing. Finally, on the 29th day of March, Grant hit upon the key that was to put him in back of Vicksburg. General John A. McClernand would take his 13th Corps and move down the Louis down the west bank of the river through the Louisiana parishes and strike the Mississippi somewhere south of Vicksburg. McClernand moved south on the 16th day of April under the cover of darkness. Porter ran past Vicksburg with eight gunboats and three transports. Six nights later, he repeated the operation with six more transports. Grant now had troops south of the city. He had the capability to get them across the river, and on the 30th day of April, he crossed the river at Bruinsburg. Then followed a 17-day campaign that was to stagger the Confederacy. Grant in five days, uh, in five, Grant in the 17 days defeated the Confederates in five battles, and on the 17th and 18th day of May closed into Vicksburg, closed in on Vicksburg from the east. Now let us look at the situation as it prevails in Vicksburg at this time. The Confederate commander at Vicksburg is General Lieutenant General John C. Pemberton with the title of of uh, commander of the Department of Mississippi in East Louisiana. When the Vicksburg campaign commenced, he had almost 50,000 men. 
outnumbered Grant, but his army was scattered, defending from Port Hudson in the south as far as the Grenada area in the north. Grant, with smaller numbers, outmaneuvered him. In each of these five battles, it should be pointed out that Grant demonstrated the criteria of a great general. He outmarched the Confederates, and though they outnumbered him in the area, each battle he outnumbered them decisively at the point of contact, the same thing that makes Jackson's Valley Campaign interesting to study, that he, he called the shots and the Confederates uh, followed suit to him. So we have General Pemberton in command. He's a West Point graduate, uh, class of 37, with Braxton Bragg and a number of other officers. He'd cast his lot with the South and commanded first in South Carolina, but he rubbed Governor Pickens the wrong way, and Pickens had had the president transfer him, or Shanghai. They sent him out to command what could be the South's most important theater of operations, the Department of Mississippi and East Louisiana. The Confederates, of course, from the time of Farragut's attack on Vicksburg, had realized that Vicksburg would be a key to draw the Union Army. So during the fall of 1862, the Confederate chief engineer, uh, Major Lockett, he was a number two in the class of West Point in 1859, he laid out a system of defenses to cover Vicksburg from an attack from the land side. As you know, at the time of the Civil War, the Mississippi, flowed in the famous horseshoe bend in front of Vicksburg. The Confederates, to defend Vicksburg, laid out a nine-mile perimeter, striking the Mississippi south of Vicksburg and again reaching to the river north of the city. Vicksburg, as you know, is located on the Lus Bluffs. Now, this system of bluffs become all important. They begin there uh, eons ago. There was, a line, uh, there was an upthrust and a, there was a system of limestone hills extending from south of Cairo, Illinois, down the east bank of the Mississippi. They follow the Mississippi southward as far as Memphis. Then they break away from the Mississippi and follow the, and swing to the east, dropping down the west bank, excuse me, the east bank of the Yazoo, strike the Mississippi again at Vicksburg, and on south to Baton Rouge, where they turn east. This gave a limestone up. Then the prevailing winds are from the southwest to the northeast. And during the eons, as the winds blew across from the deserts of northern Mexico and the southwest, they brought with them fine particles of dust. Of course, as the clouds came over this upthrust, there were rainfall, and the dust was deposited and built up this system of loss, which is fine wind-blown loam, which deposits over the limestone. So this gives, uh, it's about 80 foot thick at Vicksburg, and it cuts very easily. So it's going to be very favorable to siege operations, because you can dig it, you don't have to show. Also, it, a cut, once cut, it will stand until you get some erosion. Once you get erosion, it cuts and erodes away very rapidly. It practically dissolves just like sugar. So it's good, easy ground to dig in, but once she starts eroding, she'll erode away on you almost overnight. So this gives the Confederates their ground that they're going to have to work in. It's also, since it's an upthrust, it's very precipitous around there. And the Confederates choose their defense line along a system of ridges. The only approaches to Vicksburg will be along ridge lines. Of course, roads in those times without power moving equipment will follow the ridge lines. It's, you know, it was made with pick and shovel labor, mules, slips, 
So all the roads will be along ridge lines. So these will be the lines of approach that they know the Union will penetrate on. To the north of Vicks, going north out of Vicksburg to Yazoo City, is the road to Yazoo City. It's the one that goes out by Fort Hill. It's a commanding bluff that towers 280 feet above the river. So to guard the Yazoo Road approach to Vicksburg, the Confederates want to construct a strong point known as Fort Hill. The Confederate defense line then swings to the west, excuse me, to the east a mile and a half, following a very precipitous ridge. North of this ridge, mid-spring bio flows into the Mississippi. Here, we have another ridge line separating the watershed of mid-spring bio from glass bio, which enters the Vicksburg perimeter, roughly this one. So descending this sinuous ridge, which is only about 30 to 40 feet wide at the top, it's a hog back, would be the graveyard road. To guard the graveyard road approach to Vicksburg, the Confederates had constructed a series of strong points known as Stockade Redan, Green's Redoubt, and the 27th Louisiana Lunette. These earthworks had uh, interlocking fields of fire. Then we would go down cross Glass Bio. South of Glass Bio, another road entered Vicksburg, another one of the six roads that entered Vicksburg. This is the Jackson Road. To guard the Jackson Road approach to Vicksburg, the Confederates had two major strong points. North of the road, they had 3rd Louisiana Redan. South of the road, they had Great Redoubt. The road that the Jackson Road entered, excuse me, the ridge that the Jackson Road entered Vicksburg on is the highest point in the area. It's 400 feet above sea level. Drops down into the ravine, which is roughly uh, 160 feet above sea level. Then, a half a, a mile further south, the, the land begins to flatten out a little bit. And here, the Baldwin's Ferry Road entered Vicksburg. To guard the Baldwin's Ferry Road approach to Vicksburg, the Confederates constructed the second Texas Lunette. A quarter of a mile south, the railroad entered Vicksburg. This railroad went east from Vicksburg to Demopolis, Alabama. Then you took a boat, 15, excuse me, you went uh, west to McDowell's Bluff, rather complicated way, and then you caught a boat for 15 miles to Demopolis, then rode a train to Montgomery, then uh, took a, rode a train to Selma, then a boat to Montgomery, and then you could go on by train to Richmond. So the railroad, the Southern Railroad of Mississippi entered Vicksburg at this point, guarded by the railroad's redoubt. Then two miles further to the south, another road came into Vicksburg, guarded by the salient works. Now, between these two strong points, you've got almost two miles. So in this area, they constructed a major strong point known as Square Fort. Then you went on two miles to the river and guarding the area where the Warrington Road entered Vicksburg from the south was South Fort. Now these forts, or strong points, had uh, uh, were mounds of earth, and they had the top of the parapet, or the superior slope, was about 12 feet thick. Then in front of these works, they constructed ditches. The ditches were generally 8 feet deep, 10 feet across. So from the top of the ditch to the top of the work, you would have about 23 feet you would have to climb up. Then con connecting these nine major strong points was a line of what they called the Civil War rifle pit, or would be the World War I generally about three or four feet deep with a firing step. They had most, and then in front of the works, 
where the ridge lines, of course, were cleared because the roads entered. Where it got flat down in here, it was far. Then you drop down into ravines. So in these ravines, there was naturally timber growing. So the Confederates had put their crews to work, and they had felled timber. This became their abatis. When they fell the timber, they let it fall with its tops toward the Union line. So you would have to, if you were a Union soldier, when you attacked, you would have to move through this abatis to get up and then climb a steep ridge to get up the Confederate position. Now, during the winter months, as I say, this soil erodes rapidly. And during the winter, there'd been heavy rain. The earthworks had badly eroded. And when the Confederates filed into the earthworks on the 17th and the 18th to get ready for Grant's approach, the men had to spend several days repairing the earthworks where they washed. Now, Pepperton, when he'd gone out to greet Grant and fight him in the Battle of Champion Hill, he'd gone out with three divisions. One of the divisions had been cut off. So when he came back into Vicksburg, he had two divisions with him, both of them badly cut up at Champion Hill on the Big Block. He knew that Grant's army would approach Vicksburg from the east and from the northeast. The division that had taken the worst beating at Champion Hill was General Stevenson's division. It was the biggest division in either army numerically. It amounted to almost 12,000 men, as big as a Union Corps, but it had been badly battered. So Pemberton orders Stevenson to take position and hold the rebel right from the railroad to the river, four miles of front, but it'll be a section of the front against which the, the Union approach will not have immediately develop. Stevenson, a brief thumbnail background on Stevenson, class of 42 at West Point from Fredericksburg, Virginia. He was, he was Pepperton's senior division commander. The other division that came back from the Battle of the Big Black and Champion Hill was commanded by a man that knew General Grant quite well, General John S. Bowen, Pepperton's most able division commander, commanded a, 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 a commanded a division consisting of one brigade of Missourians, one brigade of Arkansasers. Uh, this division had, preferred, had performed gallantly at Champion Hill when for a few moments it had broken Grant's center. Uh, Bowen was a graduate of West Point, class of 1853. He'd resigned from the Army and had, was an architect in St. Louis at the outbreak of the Civil War and was quite well acquainted with Grant. So since he has the best combat division in the Confederate Army, he will be assigned the reserve strategic reserve that will be thrown in in case the Union make any penetration. Pemberton, when he'd gone out to meet Grant in the fighting to the east of Vicksburg, had left two divisions in the Vicksburg area. These will be fresh divisions. They have not seen any combat uh, during the previous disastrous day. The division commanded by General Martin L. Smith of New York, a West Point graduate, 1841, is assigned to hold the rebel left. He will hold the rebel position extending from the Mississippi River on the left to the Jackson Road on the right. The fresh division. The next division in line is also a fresh division commanded by General John Forney, West Point graduate also, uh, from Lincoln, North Carolina. At this time, he hailed from Jacksonville, Alabama. He will hold the sector of the rebel line extending from the 3rd Louisiana Redan to the railroad. His division is also fresh. So we can see the positions that Pemberton sets up his troops. He then has the river battle. <coughs> 39 heavy guns covering the three and a half miles of riverfront bearing on the Mississippi. The river batteries will be commanded by 
Edward Higgins, an ex-United States Naval officer that cast his lot with the uh, uh, South, but had transferred to the Army rather than the Navy. So we can see Pepperton's position. He has about 32,000 men, 162 field guns, 39 heavy guns along the river. Grant, as he approaches Vicksburg on the afternoon of the 18th, is, uh, comes forward with about 45,000 men, divided into three corps. General Sherman's 15th Corps will approach Vicksburg from the northeast along the Graveyard Road. General McPherson's 17th Corps will approach Vicksburg on the Jackson Road, near the Confederate left center. General McClernand, with his 13th Corps, approaches on the Jackson Road and the railroad against Pemberton's right center. Give you a brief background on the on Grant, of course, as a West Point graduate, as you know, you're well familiar, all of you are familiar with Grant, born in uh, uh, Point Pleasant, Ohio. He had, uh, he had uh, graduated from West Point. He had uh, resigned from the Army out at Fort Unbolt, uh, then moved to St. Louis, Missouri, then had gone up to Galena, Illinois, had entered service as Colonel of the 21st Illinois, had risen, risen rapidly taken command at Cairo, won Fort Donaldson, became famous as Unconditional Surrender Grant, served at Shiloh, not so credibly, and was in command of this army closing in on Vicksburg. The commander of his 15th Corps was General William T. Sherman, West Point graduate, 1842, classmate of Carter L. Stevenson. Uh, he, uh, his corps so far had seen very little action in the Vicksburg campaign. He had, his corps was organized into three divisions, 15,000 strong. General McPherson commanded the 17th Corps. McPherson had risen rapidly, but one wonders why. And the more I go into his career, the more I wonder. Because at uh, Donaldson and Shiloh, he had been in the engineers. He had not had a, uh, a large command. It then, in the reorganization of the Army, following uh, the transfer of Rosecrans to command what was to become the Army of the Cumberland, uh, McPherson had gained command of a corps. So he is, he's a West Point graduate also. He's a classmate of Bowen, so it's like old home week. He graduated in 1853, where Bowen was number 13 in the class. McPherson was number one. So he is coming in here as commander of the 17th Corps. The commander of the 13th Corps is, all, is from Illinois, like General Grant. He is John A. McClernand. John A. McClernand had served as a private in the Black Hawk War. The outbreak of the, of the Civil War, he was Mr. Lincoln's congressman. In fact, he lived two blocks from Lincoln's home down in Springfield, so undoubtedly he knew the president quite well. He was what was known as a doe face in Congress. He was a northern Democrat who voted with the southerners on sectional issues. But with the coming of the Civil War, he had tasked his lot, the same as John Logan, loyally and fervently with the Union, and had fought credibly at Donaldson and Shiloh, and was now commanding the 13th Corps, which, unlike Sherman's and McPherson's, was organized into four divisions with two brigades each, where McPherson and Sherman had their divisions uh, organized into three divisions of two brigades, excuse me, their corps, into, in, their corps were organized three divisions, three brigades each. McClernand had four divisions of two brigades each, so actually the three corps are roughly numerically even. Well, Grant, 
was convinced by his successes at Champion Hill in the Big Black, especially at the Big Black where the Confederates had run like sheep, that the Confederate morale was shot. He figured that it would only take a demonstration to cause Vicksburg to fall as he closed into the city on the 18th and the evening of the, on the morning of the 19th. He figured it would just take a show of force, the Confederates would capitulate. His army was, was aesthetic for victory. So Sherman, so Grant contacted his corps commanders and ordered them to prepare to attack Vicksburg at 2 o'clock on the afternoon of, the, of May 19th, 1863. There would be no artillery preparation because they're coming in rapidly. They do not have time to get guns into position. There'll be a little artillery support, but not, no batteries or anything thrown up. Only one corps at this time is even close to the Confederate position, and that is Sherman's uh, 15th Corps. Uh, so Sherman is going to, the assault on the 19th will be made primarily by Sherman's corps. The 17th and the 13th will only feel the Confederate position. Now Sherman is approaching the northeast approaches to Vicksburg. He will attack down the Graveyard Road. Now the Graveyard Road enters Vicksburg along a, as I told you, along a very sinuous ridge. To the south, we have the watershed of Glass Bio. To the north, we have the watershed and the drainage of Midspring Bio. The Confederates had constructed, as I told you, the stockade redan to the south of the road. The road was blocked by a palisade of poplar logs. North of the road was a 27th Louisiana lunette. Then there was a line of earthworks about 100 yards long south of the road. Then a salient work known as Green's Redan. Then a line of earthworks continuing on. Deep ravine in front of the Confederate position. The ravine filled with bell timber abatis, both north and to the east. Sherman decides to attack with one division, General Frank Blair. Now, Frank Blair is very interesting because uh, he's the Republican boss of Missouri. He'd helped hold Missouri for the Union. He's also a member of the powerful Blair family. And one of the interesting things in the Civil War, he's also responsible for a law still sitting on the books, that a man that holds an active commission in the field cannot sit in Congress and command in the field at the same time. This occurred after Vicksburg when the radicals wished to strike at Lincoln in 1864. They passed a law forcing Blair to make a choice whether he wanted to sit in Congress as a member of, of the House of Representatives, elected member of the United States House of Representatives from Missouri, or command a corps in the Union field. Blair decided to command a corps in the Union field. So Blair is going to make the assault on May, 9, uh, May 19th. They figure that it'll only take a show of force. Despite these uh, ditches in front of the rebel works, the Union troops will go forward without scaling ladders. So Blair plans his attack as follows. Shelby Smith will attack in line of battle on either side of Graveyard Road. He will move down the road against the east face of the rebel works. Giles Smith will attack due south, crossing Midspring Bio, clambering up out of the bio and hollow, and assail the north face of the rebel works. The, the third brigade of Ewing, uh, the third brigade of Blair's division, commanded by Hugh Ewing, another interesting sidelight, Hugh Ewing, 
has a twofold uh, relationship to Sherman. He is both his foster brother and his brother-in-law. So he will attack the rebel position from the northwest. The attacks will be made, despite the abatis in front of the works, it will be made in line of battle. The regiments will deploy eight companies in line of battle, they, knowing that it will take higher casualties, but they believe they can have fire control by moving their men forward shoulder to shoulder with the officers and the file closers behind them. Of course, probably using their flaps of their sabers to encourage any of the men that might want to shirk. Two regiments, two companies of each regiment are always thrown forward as skirmishers. Well, at two o'clock the attack begins. The signal gun fires and will follow each of the three brigades. First, uh, Kilby Smith starts forward. His men come out top of ridge come under Confederate fire. They then drop down into the ravines and the men began wading through the fell timber because the timber had been felled with their branches pointed toward them. So the orderly battle lines are soon thrown into chaos. Kilby Smith has to hold his men three times under fire, reform the line and lead them forward. Finally, the brigade reaches a ravine a hundred yards, excuse me, reaches a ridge 100 yards in front of the Confederate position. They then take cover. Four of the regiments do. One regiment, the 83rd Indiana, dashes down the road, which has purposely been left open, and they jump in the ditch in front of the rebel works. Now, when they get down in the ditch, they're relatively safe because they're, these other four regiments that have halted on this ridge begin firing in volleys. By firing in volleys, they keep the Rebs pinned down because if the Rebs are going to fire down in the ditch, you have to, it's about 23 feet down to the ditch. You have to stand forward onto your earthworks because the earthworks were about the superior slope, but the top of the earthworks was roughly 14 feet across. So the 83rd Indiana is in the ditch. The rest of Kilby Smith's men are on this ridge 100 yards from the rebel position. At the same time, Giles Smith's men have started off the ridge to the north of the works. Giles Smith leaves one regiment behind, the 8th Missouri, to fire in volley to keep the rebels pinned down. His rest of his men, he leads them down into the ravine. They drop down about 60 feet, cross the hollow, and start climbing up, fighting their way through the timber, the rebels firing into them. The colors of the, uh, the 10 color bearers of the 13th U.S. Infantry are cut down. The flag is shot to ribbons, and a few survivors dive into the ditch in front of the work. The rest of the brigade is pinned down. Now Ewing's men are seen coming forward. Ewing's brigade was somewhat different than the other brigades in Grant's army. Now, most of the Western troops were just as un-GI as the rebels. The, uh, the 99th Illinois was without shoes during this campaign, so they can't say during a, the end of the campaign, so they can't say that the rebels were the only ones without shoes. They, did not, they were not very GI, these Western soldiers, but this brigade of Ewing's was different. It had been transferred out from the Department of the Kanawha. They were Eastern soldiers, the so-called bandbox boys. They had also had the distinction of being captured at Harper's Ferry when General Miles uh, and White surrendered Harper's Ferry to Jackson. With the 12,000 men being transferred out here, they were GI. They wore the kepi instead of the floppy hat that the Western soldier wore. And they were known, since the combat effectiveness had not been too proven at Harper's Ferry, as the Harper's Ferry Cowards. And they began moving forward. 
And for a while, you, you looked bad to Giles Smith's men because it looked like they were going to have to eat their words because instead of coming forward with their... They, had, they came forward with their packs on, wearing gaiters, gaiters and dickies. And it looked for a while like the Fort West Virginia was going right into the rebel works, and they'd have to eat their words. But they approached it within about 50 yards, and they too recoiled. Now it became a problem. Uh, Sherman had some of his men in the ditch. The rest of them had to keep firing to keep the rebs pinned down. As you begin firing in volley, as you know, these men, you men that fire muzzle loaders, Know that if you keep firing rapidly, you will, your pieces will begin to foul. You also begin to fire up your 40 rounds of ammunition, your 40 dead men. One of the regiments on this ridge was from Waukegan, Illinois, the 55th Illinois. Its colonel was Colonel Oscar Malmberg, a Swedish soldier, a Swedish soldier of fortune, who did not speak, did not have too good a command of the English language, and also was somewhat addicted to hard liquor. <laughs> Malmberg had already sent a few men racing to the rear to bring up ammunition to, to, so the men could fill up their cartridge boxes. A number of the men were killed as they raced or wounded as they raced down the road. He called for more volunteers. One, the musician was uh, musician Oren Howe, 14 years old. Musician Oren Howe volunteered to race to the rear and tell Sherman to send up ammunition. Oren Howe Here's Malmberg say what he thinks is caliber 57. Actually, he had said 55. But this does not detract from Howe's uh, bravery. Howe races down the road. Rebels firing at him. He's slightly wounded. He reaches Sherman's command post 500 yards off, gasps out to send up ammunition. The ammunition comes forward. Of course, Howe has misunderstood had uh, not understood the colonel. They that, so I said, this doesn't really detract from it. It's one of these human interest stories. The wrong size ammunition comes up, but Howe becomes one of the youngest men to ever win the Medal of Honor. The attack is pinned down. As soon as darkness falls, Sherman pulls his men out, and the Union falls back. Having lost 900 in excess of 900 men, the Confederates about 100, and showing Grant that their morale had not broken. Uh, so the first attack on Vicksburg has ended in failure for the Union. Well, Grant is undaunted. Now, he, as he looked at the situation on the, on the 20th and the 21st, he can see that he has two options. He can try to attack Vicksburg again, or he can lay siege to Vicksburg. Now, he, his army, despite the setback on the 19th, still thinks they can take Vicksburg. They, their morale is high. And he knows as long as their morale is high that they won't work. They, they'll hate to go working in the hot Mississippi sun, digging earthworks and fortifications when they think they can still take the city. So this is in favor of an assault. He also knows that if he lays, lays siege to the, to the Confederates, it's in, going into May, soon be into June, could drag into July. The hot Mississippi summer is liable to kill more men than Confederate bullets. So that's another thing in favor of an assault. Also, he knows that General Joe Johnston is over around Jackson, and he knows that Jefferson Davis and Seddon will be rushing troops to try and reinforce Johnston so Johnston can break through and relieve Pepperton. Grant knows that if to cope with Johnston, he will have to call on Halleck for reinforcements, and this will cause the Union to call in troops from other areas. So 
Despite knowing it will be heavy losses to attack Vicksburg, he can see the advantage. The men's morale is high. They won't work very much as long as they think they can take the city by assault. He knows that the hot Mississippi summer is at hand, and he can see that it will take more men to lay siege. So he decides on another assault on Vicksburg. This time it'll be well planned. There'll be a lot of artillery preparation. He'll put 220 guns in position to blast the Confederates. He will call on Porter to support him with the gunboats. So it'll be a coordinated effort. Also, when they attack this time, they won't use the signal gun. They will synchronize their watches, and they will attack at 10 o'clock. This will be the first assault in the Civil War made by a synchronized watch instead of a signal gun. They will all three corps will attack at 10 o'clock. Grant, however, will leave the disposition of the troops as a good commander to each of the corps commanders. And this is going to be a lesson on the ability of the corps commanders at this stage of the war and on how the three men deal with the problem. So we will, de we will discuss the assault, realizing that all are going to take place at 10 o'clock, but I'll we'll start from left to right. So we'll discuss General Sherman first. Sherman has about 14,000 men organized into three divisions. So Sherman is going to attack the, the Confederate left. Here's the Mississippi River. Again, as all things, the salient angle is the weakest point in the Confederate position. So his assault will be delivered primarily against Stockade Redan. Here we, have this, here we have the Graveyard Road, as I told you before, entering Vicksburg. Stockade Redan to the south of it. The 27th Louisiana Lunette to the north. Then we have another strong, uh, minor strong point over here, the 26th Louisiana Redan. So Sherman has been burned in his assault on May 19th. He senses that it'll be impossible to attack in line of battle. So he comes up with another idea. He'll make a battering ram of two divisions. He'll send a battering ram of 10,000 men down the Jackson Road for a breast. Excuse me, Graveyard Road. He's going to send 10,000 men down the road. So first he goes to General Blair and tells Blair, give me 150 volunteers. So Blair goes to Ewing, Giles Smith, and Kilby Smith and says, each of you give me 50 men. So they give him 50. So they detail uh, 50 men each, which gives him 150 men for a forlorn hope. The night before, on the 21st, they raise a building near the Confederate line. Now the, the forlorn hope will go forward with rubble in their hands from the building. Uh, their rifles will be strapped across their shoulders, and when they reach the ditch in front of the rebel works, they will deposit this rubble in the ditch. This will fill up the ditch. Then the next regiment in line will come down. The ditch will be filled in, and they will go right into Vicksburg. That is how the theory is to be. Meanwhile, General Fred Steele will attack the Confederate position halfway between Graveyard Road and the river. Well, we'll, dispose, we'll get rid of Steele very rapidly. Steele gets bogged down, and along comes 10 o'clock. Steele's men aren't even in position. So we have Steele's 5,000 men make no contribution to the 10 o'clock attack. So we have Steele X'd out to his own inefficiency, if you wish to call it that. At 10 o'clock, at 6 o'clock, however, the Yankee artillery had gone into action. From 6 to 10 o'clock, 35 guns of Sherman's Corps blasted the stockade Redan with a converging fire. 
course, this is in the day before smokeless powder. Gray smoke begins rolling up and clouds of dust as this earth powders very easily. Soon the rebel lines are invis invisible. They're simply clouded in smoke and dust. At 10 o'clock, Sherman gives the word, the artillery ceases fire, and Ewing goes up and tells Captain Gross, who is in charge of the Forlorn Hope, 150 men, and tells him to go forward. From a point 500 yards to the rebel works, the men start forward at the double time, their hands filled with rubble, their rifles strapped across their backs. They move forward slowly, the dust and the smoke begin to dissipate from the rebel line. Uh, at a point 100 yards to the west, east of the rebel position, the road passes through a narrow cut. Gross and his men come out of the cut in the road, and, they, and suddenly the rebels rear up. The artillery fire has not bothered them at all. They fire a cracking volley, the dead and the wounded fall in the cut in the road, the other men sprint forward about 80 yards and dive into the ditch. And up on the superior slope of the Confederate work goes Ewing's headquarters flag, where it has been planted by Private Howell Trogdon. The next regiment, the 30th Ohio, comes down the road on the double. The rifles at port fix bayonets. They hit the cut in the road. Again, the crashing volley comes. The dead and the wounded fall. Lieutenant Colonel Hilt and a number of men dash forward and jump into the ditch alongside the storming party. The next regiment, four abreast, hits the cut in the road. I hope none of you men have any forebears in the regiment. It hits the cut in the road, and the men see the dead and wounded lying there, and the regiment pulls, to use a Korean phrase, a bug out. <laughs> they throw themselves down and won't move. Colonel Von Blessing races in along with Ewing and the sergeant major and start whaling, whaling the men with their flats of their sabers, but they won't move. The great assault has come to a stop. The Nazi's battering ram cannot advance because this cut in the road is choked with this regiment that refuses to advance. Sherman's assault is suspended on the morning of the 19th after engaging out of 14,000 men available, 150 men of the storming party, the 30th Ohio, which probably uh, probably mustered about 450 men that morning. So you can see on the morning of May 22nd, not a very hard assault on the part of Mr. Sherman. The next assault happening at the same time will be McPherson. McPherson is to carry the Confederate position between, uh, near Jackson Road. North of Jackson Road, as I say, Jackson Road, like the Graveyard Road, enters Vicksburg on a sinuous ridge. To the north of the road is the 3rd Louisiana Redan, defended by the 3rd Louisiana Regiment. To the south of the road is the Great Redoubt, defended by the 21st Louisiana. The rebel line then extends south. To carry this position, General, Sh General McPherson has given Logan the, the, the task. Logan assigns one brigade, John Smith. John Smith is from Galena, Illinois. John Smith will launch an attack down the Jackson Road, the battering ram, column four abreast. General Stevenson will attack the, the great redoubt, but he will attack a little different. I'll go into that. Then General Quimby's division is to advance 5,000 strong against the Confederate position to the south of the great redoubt. Again, as it happened, before, at, at 6 o'clock, 
McPherson puts 24 guns into action, and they blast the Confederate artillery out of the 3rd Louisiana Redan. At 10 o'clock, the artillery falls silent. Logan gives the order, and John Smith sends his men racing down the graveyard, racing down Jackson Road toward 3rd Louisiana Redan. The 23rd Indiana from New Albany in the lead. They strike a cut in the road, 50 yards in for the Confederate position. The Rebs open fire, and the 23rd Indiana takes cover north of the road. The next regiment in line, the 20th Illinois, takes cover south of the road, and Logan suspends the attack. Meanwhile, General John Stevenson has attacked. He deploys the 17th Illinois as skirmishers and then comes forward with two columns of assault. One spearheaded by the 8th Illinois, Colonel Dollins, one spearheaded by the 7th Missouri, Captain Buchanan. They race forward. One regiment makes good gain. It's the 7th Missouri, Captain Buchanan leading. They have been equipped with scaling ladders 17 feet in length. They reach the ditch in front of the rebel works. They plant their ladders down, but as I told you before, it's approximately 23 feet from the bottom of the ditch to the top of the works. One can well imagine the Gaelic curses that rent the air <laughs> as, the, as the green flag with the gold harp and the Arango broth goes up, but the Confederates begin pitching six, 12, and 18-pound shells down with them and soon rout Buchanan's men. The left column of assault, led by Dollins of the 8th Illinois, falls to pieces when Dollins is killed. The assault bogs down after five regiments have been engaged. Quinby's division starts forward. Rebel artillery roars in action. Two men are killed. Three are wounded. Kent Quinby's 5,000 men fall back. <laughs> McPherson engaged as out of 34 regiments, seven regiments. Now we'll go down to where a general is going to engage all his men, but, the, uh, but he's going to have no reserve. This is General McLaren. Now, General McClarnon is to carry three rebel strong points. The Baldwin's Ferry Road is guarded by the Second Texas Lunette. The railroad redoubt is guarded by the rape, excuse me, the railroad is guarded by the railroad redoubt. Then, a mile further to the south is a Confederate strong point known as Square Fort. A line of earthworks ties these strong points together. General McClannan has approximately 12,000 men available to assault these three works. He will assign two brigades to take care of each. The assault in this sector will be commanded by Eugene Asa Carr, won the, won the Medal of Honor at Pea Ridge, as you know. Uh, Carr is from Illinois. So Carr assigns the task of carrying the second Texas lunette, makes it always easy in discussing this attack, he assigns it to the 2B, Benton and Burbridge. He will let the two L's attack Railroad Redoubt, Lawler and Landrum. Osterhaus will attack Square Fort. Again, these attacks all take place at the same time. Again, from 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock, McLaren's artillery, 36 guns, hammer the rebel works. At 10 o'clock, the Union advance is ready to begin. Benton had formed his men in a ravine to the north of the Baldwin's Ferry Road. At 10 o'clock, 
Colonel Bailey leads his 99th Illinois out of the ravine. It's a hot day, and the boys of the 99th Illinois had peeled off their shirts. So they're coming out of there in their blue pants and their, and their long johns above. They come out of there, Bailey deploys them, and they sweep forward toward the rebel position as they deploy in the line of battle. The color bearer of the 99th Illinois is Thomas Jefferson Higgins, an Irishman. As Thomas Jefferson Higgins goes forward, he doesn't look to the left nor to the right. He advances forward, proudly bearing the colors of the 99th Illinois. A short distance to the right of the second Texas lunette is a low place in the rebel works. Higgins goes over. Kirk Captain Hurley of the second Texas grabs him and pulls him into the works and starts feeling his chest. And Hurley says, my men are good shots. You are wearing a bulletproof vest. And Higgins looks to the rear to see where any men of the 99th Illinois are. Not a man of the 99th is in view. <laughs> the disgusted Irishman says, if I wore a bulletproof vest, I'd wear it on my ass. <laughs> He's taken into Vicksburg. The other regiments have come up, the 33rd Illinois, the 14th and the 16th Indiana, and they drive forward and jump into the ditch in front of the rebel works. The 2nd Texas is only about 14 feet and 32 feet up from them. The, the rebel works have been, the rebel embrasures are sealed with cotton bales. They're falling so close that the cotton bales now catch fire and it works. It looks for a while like the second Texas lunette is going to fire. The men of the Chicago Mercantile Battery wheel forward one gun and put it in position within 30 feet of the rebel works and begin firing through the rebel embrasure. Meanwhile, Burbridge has now come up in support of Bethany. His men reach the ditch also. They do not have quite enough push to get in. All the brigades, 10 regiments are engaged. They're into the rebel work, they're into the ditch and for the rebel work, but they do not have quite enough push to get over and into the second Texas lunette. At the same time, to the south of the railroad, Lehrer's Iowa Brigade sweeps forward. The 21st and 22nd Iowa, 97th Illinois, and 11th Wisconsin. They advance. The railroad redoubt. The railroad redoubt on the morning of the 22nd was held by the uh, by the 30th Alabama. The, uh, the bombardment had caused most of the summer soldiers and the Sunshine Patriots of the 30th Alabama to fall back to a second line of earthworks. Only a small force is left in. The 22nd Iowa and the 21st Iowa reached the ditch in front of the rebel works. And sergeants Messenger and Griffin, carrying the colors of the 22nd, enter the rebel works and pass them. They're inside the great redoubt. They're inside the railroad redoubt. The two other regiments, the 97th Illinois and the 11th Wisconsin, advance into a re-effort in the rebel line where they are pinned down. Landrum now sends his men forward, and the 77th Illinois colors and the 48th Ohio colors go up alongside the 22nd Iowa. There's a savage struggle in the rebel works. Colonel Shelley of the 30th Alabama calls for a counterattack, led by Captain Odom. Odom leads his men forward. They charge into the works, and they spy a number of rebels from the 30th Alabama, led by Lieutenant Pearson, hiding behind a trap. Odom sees him and says, why in the hell ain't you fighting? Pearson says, you'll find out. The rebels fire back. They repel Odom's assault, and Odom is killed, and his men fall back. 
But again, the Red Pearson surrendered. The Yankees are now in possession of the great of the railroad redoubt, but the Confederates hold a secondary work. But again, McClernand has engaged nine regiments here. All nine are engaged, but they are now, despite gaining the rebel work, pinned down. Afterhouse moves forward and is pinned down here. So we see McClernand has operated somewhat differently than his two brother corps commanders. He has engaged every regiment he has. He then messages Grant and says, I have part possession of two works. Please support me. Grant, after he writes his official report, is to change McClernand's wording to saying, I have possession. He took the part out. Actually, to analyze it, the McClernand's men have possession of the ditch here, and they did have possession of this work. But McClernand still says, I only have part. Grant is to strike the part out. All right. McClernand sends this message to Grant to support him. Grant now, at this time, Grant has moved up and joined General Sherman. Now, the great admirer of Grant, but Grant is going to do something now that even, his, even Marshall and I, who are admirers, have, uh, have to admit is a little far-fetched. He's up with Sherman. Now, the ridge along which Sherman is operating is four miles north of where McClernand is. The elevation of the ridge on which Sherman operates is 340 feet above sea level. The elevation of the ridge along which McPherson is attacking, which is a mile to the south, is 400 feet above sea level. Where McClellan is operating, which is three miles south of where McPherson is, is 260 feet above sea level. So Grant says, I look to the left, and it looked to me like McClellan was exaggerating his successes. Now, he has done something that even uh, his admirers admit are a little difficult. He has seen through a point that's 100 feet higher than he was standing on. Well, be that as it may, Grant now orders the assault renewed on Vicksburg, and he orders McPherson to support McClendon with Quinby's division. Now, Quinby's division is this one that lost two killed and three wounded when the rebel artillery opened fire and pulled out. So on the afternoon of the 22nd, the assault are resumed. Now Sherman again is going to be attacking in the Graveyard Road area. At 2 o'clock, he sends uh, Charlie Wesselhoff's with Grandfather something regiment forward. General Ransom attacks, spearheaded by the 14th Wisconsin, attacks a re-effort in the Confederate line 200 yards south of Stockade Redan. They sweep through the abatis and then charge up a steep slope, about a 35-degree slope. The rebels fire into their front, and worse, there are a bunch of rebels holding a line of trenches that are able to catch them in the flank. So not only do they catch it in the front, they catch it in the flank. Ransom's men lose 410 men and fall back. The 14th Wisconsin seized ground within about 15 yards of the rebel works and spent and remained there until dark till they could then at 2 o'clock, excuse me, at 2.20, Giles Smith attacks the Confederate line at a point 200 yards to the north of where Ransom did and is repulsed. At 3 o'clock, Sherman repeats the battering ram. This time, the Eagle Brigade, led by the 11th Missouri, starts down the graveyard road. The 
the 11th Missouri, led by Colonel Weber, hits the cut in the road. The rebels fire crashing volley. The dead and the wounded fall, and a few survivors dash into the ditch. And alongside Ewing's headquarters flag, which has been flapping there since about 10:10, go the colors of the 11th Wisconsin, uh, 11th Minnesota. Uh, excuse me, 11th Missouri. The next regiment down the road is the 47th Illinois. They get some of them get into the ditch. Just as old Abe eats Wisconsin start forward, probably lucky for old Abe. Sherman has seen enough. Orders the attack suspended, and they fall back because old Abe was about ready to be blasted into eternity. <laughs> now to clear out the ditch in front of the works, the Confederates have a one-man army like Captain Wilmot from Illinois on the pan. He's Colonel Dawes of the Third Missouri. He gets a number of 18-pound shells and begins and starts working the Union troops over that are in the ditch. Soon, 22 of them surrender. The troops, the attack is suspended. Meanwhile, Freddie Steele finally gets into action. He was supposed to attack at 10 o'clock. At 4 o'clock in the afternoon, he attacks the Confederate line at the 26th Louisiana Redoubt and is easily repulsed. But again, as you can see what Sherman has done, he is attacking the Confederates have an interior position, and he's attacking on an exterior arc, and they're easily beating him off. McPherson, even more pathetic than in the morning. He sends the lead miner regiment down Jackson Road. The lead miners get forward, take cover alongside the 20th Illinois within about 30 yards of the Confederate position where they remain for two days. Then he suspends the attack. Quimby's division has been siphoned away from him. This is the division that had lost five men in the morning. He is ordered to go support McClary. Now, now, before we get too hard on them, uh, we've got to remember that communications pass very slowly. By the time he reports to McClarnard, it is 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And when he reports to McClarnard, they, McClarnard's men now make a blunder. They assign one brigade to support each one of his assault units. He sends Sanborn to support the attack on 2nd Texas Lunette. He sends Boomer to assault, support the attack on Railroad Redoubt and Holmes to support Oscar House, Banner Square Fort. Uh, the first one, we will discuss the Railroad Redoubt first. As I told you, Landrum and Lara are in the ditch. They also have three regiments in the works. The 77th Illinois, the uh, 48th Ohio, and 22nd Iowa. The rebels back here, 35 to 40 yards off, Look off to the northeast, and there they can see Boomer forming his brigade. And they can see if Boomer comes in there and can hit into this gap that they blasted in the rebel line, they'll always go right into Vicksburg. The, colonel, the commander of the rebel brigade here is Stephen Dill Lee. Stephen Dill Lee goes to Colonel Shelley, whose men have been driven out of the railroad redoubt earlier in the day, and he asks Colonel Shelley, have your men recover this work. He says, see the Federals forming over there. Shelley goes to his Alabamans. They've seen all they want. They will not fight anymore. Only two, three men are willing. His lieutenant colonel, Edmund Pettus, and three other men. Well, then he goes to Colonel Wall, commander of the Reserve Legion of Texans, and Wall, and Wall volunteers his men. The area is very restricted, so only two companies of the Legion will go forward. So guided by Cap Colonel Pettus, the two companies of the Legion drive forward and drive the Federals out of the railroad redoubt. The 
rest of the Legion are brought up along with General Lee, and they begin throwing 18-pound shells down into the ditch where the Union troops have taken cover. Soon, Colonel Harvey Graham of the 22nd Iowa throws up those down his sword, and he and a large number of men surrender. The colors of the 22nd Iowa are torn down and sent to the rear. The colors of the 77th of Illinois and 48th Ohio suffer the same fate as men from the Legion drive forward and sweep the Confederate position in front of railroad redoubt. Too late, Boomer starts forward. As Boomer is leading his men forward, he is cut down, his brigade is thrown into confusion, and Boomer falls back, and the penetration is sealed up. Meanwhile, up at Baldwin's Ferry Road, a snafu occurs. Sanborn's fresh troops come forward, Burbridge's and Benton's have been fighting for six hours. They see the fresh troops coming up. As soon as they see them coming up, they say, we're relieved. Hooray. Go to the rear, and they pull out and leave Sanborn's men to seize the position. In fact, Sanborn's men are hard-pressed to hold the gains because the rebels immediately launch a counterattack. They are, however, able to fall back, bringing with them the guns of the mercantile bomber. The attack has failed. We'll cover one other sector of the attack from the south. The Union had made one thrust against the southern approaches to Vicksburg, against South Hook. This is to also begin at 10 o'clock. It will be made by, by one of your Illinois men, General MacArthur. No, the Chicago MacArthur, John MacArthur, not Arthur MacArthur, the general father. He will come up with a reinforced brigade from Warren and attempt to capture South Fort and enter Vicksburg from the south. His attack will be supported by Porter's fleet. Porter, with four gunboats, begins the bombardment of South Fort at 7 o'clock in the morning. The Confederates are seen to fall out, but again, they have not coordinated their operation. MacArthur has not moved fast. Porter heads on upriver and duels with the Confederate water batteries at the Marine Hospital. The Navy gets the worst of it. The gunboats drop back. By the time MacArthur's men come up to threaten an attack on South Fort, the fleet has pulled back. The Confederates have reoccupied their work. They now order MacArthur to move to support McClernand. MacArthur's men move back. By the time they reach the sector where McClernand's men are operating, it's the morning of the 23rd. The attack on Vicksburg, the great assault of May 22nd, has failed. 3,199 federal soldiers are killed and wounded. Confederate losses under 500. Grant was now to demonstrate his strength of willpower. I know Lloyd Miller will love this. Uh, just as he did at Cold Harbor, and Mississippi weather is a lot hotter than Virginia. Long came the 23rd, the day after the attack. The dead and the wounded are out in front of the rebel line. Uh, Everton is sure that Grant will ask for a truce to remove his dead and wounded. 23rd passes into history. The 24th dawn. Fewer of the wounded are, are moaning now. The dead are beginning to smell a little bit. The 24th passes into history. And by morning of the 25th, Martin L. Smith comes to Pemberton and says, the smell's getting a little bad. He says, my men are complaining. So finally, uh, Pemberton realizes that Grant is not going to weaken, and on the afternoon of the 25th, Pemberton proposes a three-hour armistice, or a secession of hostilities, to allow Grant to remove his dead and wounded. 
6 o'clock on the evening of the 25th day of May, the deception of hostilities begins. The Union burial parties come forward. The ambulance corps, I firmly doubt that after that many hours in the hot Mississippi sun that any of the wounded were left to remove the dead. Uh, after this, the hostilities are resumed. Also on the 25th, Grant, uh, Grant issued orders to his chief engineer, Captain Prime, to begin siege operations of Vicksburg. Prime uh, shows you what you should, you shouldn't stay in the Corps of Engineers. As I said, McPherson was a uh, member of the class of 53, number one. He switched the line, now was a major general. Prime was number one in the class of 51, certainly as imposing academic credentials as McPherson, but he had chose to remain with the Corps of Engineers and he was still a captain. So he had orders to begin siege operations. Siege operations were commenced. Grant, of course, realized now he'd have to call on Halleck for reinforcements, and Halleck began sending him fresh troops, pulling troops from out of central Kentucky, from the bluegrass region of Missouri, and stripping uh, Dr. Clausius' friend up in West Tennessee of 12,000 men to build Grant up to a force of some 77,000 men, enough to cope with both Johnston, uh, both Johnston and Pemberton. Uh, the repercussions were not long in coming. Uh, on the 25th also, uh, General McClellan drafted a special order addressed to the men of the 13th Corps, eulogizing their conduct during the assault on Vicksburg on May 22nd, rather, uh, rather rightly. His men had uh, captured the railroad redoubt, held possession of it for some six hours, had placed a large number of men in the uh, ditches fronting uh, 2nd Texas Lunette, and also calling attention uh, to uh, some derelictions on the part of the other two corps commanders. Nothing was said about this for some time. On the 17th day of June, the Chicago Tribune was delivered to the Army, as was the St. Louis Democrat and the St. Louis Republican. They were delivered, uh, circ soon circulated through the armies, and reached, as naturally as to be expected, General uh, Sherman's and General McPherson's headquarters. Lo and behold, when they're reading the columns in the paper, they see this special order issued by McClanad to the men of the 13th Corps, eulogizing the 13th Corps and casting aspersions on the uh, 15th and 17th Corps. They rode rapidly for General Grant's headquarters with the copies of these papers and uh, asked General Grant if he knew about this special order. And Grant said no. And they said, isn't there a general order in the United States Army that all special orders are supposed to clear to the Army commander? And Grant says, right. Then he calls for rounds and tells rounds to write a message summoning, summoning General McClellan to Army headquarters, and he said, uh, McClanad, did you, General McClanad, did you uh, draft this special order? And General McClanad said, yes, and he said, uh, didn't my ad assistant adjutant general send it to you? And Grant said, no, I have no record of it. And McClanad uh, said, uh, Grant then wrote out orders relieving General McClanad and appointing on the 18th day of June General Edward O.C. Ord to command of the 13th Corps. McClanad then came back to Illinois to address a number of letters to both Secretary Stanton and his friend, the President, uh, pointing out his position in the affair. Vicksburg, as you know, the siege continued. The city was invested. Twelve approach trenches were driven toward Vicksburg. Mines were set off. 
food and ammunition ran short. Johnston made no move to relieve Pemberton. And on July 2nd, 1862, Pemberton held a meeting with his four division commanders and asked them should they try and cut their way out of Vicksburg. Three of the four said no. Uh, Pemberton then opened negotiations on the third with General Grant. Grant, through his nickname, gained at Fort Donaldson, demanded unconditional surrender. The interview broke up. During the night, Grant modified his terms, in essence giving Pemberton the same terms as he was to give to General Lee at Appomattox on April 9, 1865. Pemberton held a meeting, again, with all his brigade and division commanders to decide whether they should accept these terms. They voted 17 to 2 to accept them, and on July 4, 1863, the Confederate 29,500 strong marched off, stacked their arms, and took them to surrender, and the Vicksburg siege was over. My opinion, this is a great moment for the Union. It was a defeat uh, that dwarfs uh, Gettysburg. Uh, in the Vicksburg campaign, we have General Grant inflicting 40,000 casualties, counting the 30,000 Confederates as casualties, which they were on the Confederate Army suffering only 10,000 of his own. He captured 260 Confederate cannon, 60,000 stand of arms, 2 million rounds of ammunition. He destroyed a Confederate army. More important, he gained the great psychological uh, objective that the men of the Northwest were struggling for, control of the Mississippi River. The Confederacy had been centered along the line of the Mississippi. Thank you very much.